Welcome back to the program. We eat candy bars because it's a tastier sugar delivery system than just eating sugar granules. Some people smoke cigarettes because it was once seen as a status form of a nicotine delivery system. Chewing tobacco just didn't have the same kind of image. In many respects, we drink vodka for the same reason. It's a colorless, odorless, and some argue tasteless alcohol delivery system. Think of it as the alcohol equivalent of soy. It takes on the flavor of whatever's been added to it. Given this, why is vodka so popular and so lucrative? And why has it become America's principal spirit? We're going to try and find out today by talking with my guest, Victorino Mattis. Victorino Mattis is a senior editor at the Weekly Standard. He's written for the New York Post, Washingtonian Magazine, and the Wall Street Journal. And it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his new book, Vodka, How a Colorless, Odorless, Flavorless Spirit Conquered America. Victorino, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's good to have you here a little early in the morning to talk about vodka, but it's noon somewhere. That's exactly right. It's noon somewhere. It's happy hour somewhere. So nobody's going to notice. Don't worry about it. You can always, you know, vodka is so mixable, you can just mix it in your orange juice right now. Well, that is one of the interesting things about it is that it is mixable, but that on its own, some would argue there's very little difference between all the many vodkas that are out there and that the principal difference is really the, the sort of status that certain brands convey. Well, that's exactly right, and I think that was the whole purpose of vodka when it was created. And so, you know, when it came to this country and the book that I wrote, uh, the vodka book, uh, focuses on vodka in America primarily. And when vodka came to this country in 1934, just after Prohibition ended, you know, it, it came at a time when uh, the American drinker, uh, had changed its habits, its habits. And so instead of, uh, wanting to drink these fancy cocktails, these Jerry Thomas, you know, complex, you know, concoctions, uh, the new Americans that were turning, you know, 18 years old in 1934, they wanted to get drunk quick. And as many witnesses said at the time, this new crowd that was showing up at bars, you know, they didn't care about flavor. They didn't care about, you know, character or color. That was an obstacle. Just how do I get there? And vodka, was precisely uh, the perfect medium for that. It's very mixable. Uh, it's distilled up to 190 proof according to federal law, so it strips everything from that spirit, you know, color, character, odor. And that's the, play, uh, that's the uh, definition that was given to vodka in 1949. Uh, and so that is what we have today. And I think a lot of people like you know, vodka precisely because they don't like to taste booze in their booze. And the first vodka to really become popular, as you write about, was Smirnoff, which was licensed to Ublin back in 1938. That's right. That's right. And it's really funny to think that it almost failed. You know, I mean, it, vodka came to this country officially with Smirnoff in 1934 in Bethel, Connecticut, 1938, Ublin. Luckily bought it because it was falling apart by that time. I mean, they had sold only about 2,000 cases a year. You think about Smirnoff today, they sell 20 million, more than 20 million cases around the world a year. I mean, it's amazing. And, you know, even when Hublin had it, uh, they almost uh, fell apart themselves. The company had one good product at the time, and that was A1 Steak Sauce. So when you think about vodka, vodka was saved by A1 Steak Sauce. Uh, and, you know, they pushed it into the 1940s, and the head of Hublin, John Martin, and a fellow out in Hollywood, uh, they came up with the drink, the Moscow Mule, which is vodka and ginger beer and wine. 
And, of course, the Bloody Mary uh, came out at the St. Regis Hotel in New York in the 1930s, which is the tomato juice and vodka. And then by the 1950s, Smirnoff came up with that great tagline, which was, Smirnoff leaves you breathless. So, in case you wanted to drink, you didn't want anyone to actually smell it on your breath, this was your drink to go to. And, in fact, this was the era of the four-martini lunch, so the idea of something that wasn't going to stay on your breath when you got back to the office was a big deal. That, that's exactly right. And it was also popular, apparently, in Hollywood with actors who didn't want directors getting on their cases about drinking, so they would be drinking Moscow mules, apparently, and going back on the set. Uh, and it's funny, because the inverse is also true. There's a fellow, Dan Oliver, who used to be the former head of the uh, Federal Trade Commission, and when he was at a law firm in the 1960s, you know, everybody drank. You were talking about the three, the four martini lunch. And, and they told him, the lawyers told him, if you're going to drink, drink brown spirits because at least the clients will know you're drunk and not just acting stupid. Because <laughs> if they don't smother in your breath, you might just be seeming weird to them. It was also part of a broader trend that related not just to spirits, but even arguably food to some extent during this period in the early 50s. Bland was kind of in. Things that were kind of tasteless had some appeal. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that really matched the food at the time. You're absolutely right about that. And the same thing with beer. After Prohibition, the big companies had taken over, and they were looking for what could have the broadest appeal and sell the most. And, of course, the common denominator is bland. Uh, and people argue about this with, for example, cruise ships and how you can cater to, you know, 700, 800 people at a time and not have everybody, and not everybody get upset about it. And that's the same thing with uh, vodka. You know, I mean, it, it, it was bland and it was a perfect vehicle and you can mix anything you want with it, whether it be Coca-Cola or ginger beer or orange juice. And you're right, absolutely, with the food at the time. And we were going towards frozen foods at the time and bird's eye and things like that and, and TV dinners for that matter. And uh, it was perfect. And, of course, our tastes have changed with food, and certainly our tastes with liquor have changed as well. Uh, but vodka has tried to keep pace, and, uh, in fact, that's why you have things such as flavored vodkas today, or even non-flavored vodkas that argue that they're still different from other brands and don't mix us, drink us on the rocks, and you can have us with some fancy meal. And then, of course, there was the very successful campaign that Sky Vodka did at one point, that it wasn't going to leave you with a hangover. Oh, that's right. And that's a bit of a controversy there, you know. And uh, when, when, when this was uh, created by uh, Maurice Canbar uh, in the late 1980s, uh, and he had come up with a few other pants. He was an inventor. But one of the things that concerned him was these headaches he was getting, whether it be from one glass of red wine or perhaps having a, a, a glass of scotch. And he didn't like that, and he talked to his doctor, he says, and the doctor said it had to do with congeners, impurities, and that certain spirits and wines have more congeners and impurities than others. And vodka, he said, would have the least. And that is when the light bulb went off in Sidney Canbar, uh, Maurice Canbar's head, and that's when he said, you know what, I want to come up with a really pure clean vodka and he had a patented process for this and i think it was at the time triple or quadruple distilled and uh, and that's what he had been touting but of course once sky got very popular you know the federal government the atf at the time and now uh, it's tax and trade bureau they got on his case and they said you know you really cannot 
advertise that this vodka will leave you with no hangovers. I mean, it wasn't a matter of just, you know, after you have like five or ten drinks, but rather any alcohol, there's going to be some effect. And so uh, Maurice knows that you cannot fight the government on this, and so he backed off. And, uh, and so now uh, they had to go with a different, you know, a different angle that didn't advertise um, that, you know, you wouldn't have any hangovers. And they had very slick advertisements. Uh, and so that helped them as well. And they, you know, were very racy uh, at the time, some of these ads. And some of them, which are in my book, um, they're very uh, alluring. Uh, but again, he could not bring up the, the whole headache issue. But I tell you, you know, it's one of my favorite uh, vodkas. It, and it's, I like it not only because it feels very pure and clean. I don't seem to have any problems the next day. Uh, but also it, the price is agreeable. And, and it's funny because when I did the book, uh, Sky actually said, we don't try to talk about the price. You know, they're trying to go for the glamour. And I said, you know, for somebody like me, I'm trying to go for, you know, something that's economical. So there you have it. I want to talk a little bit about really what transformed even Smirnoff with their sexy ads and the campaigns that they did that really upped the ante. And that was absolute. They made vodka even more of a status symbol. Uh, that's exactly right. When Absolute came out in the 1970s, the competition uh, w- was pretty lackadaisical because you didn't have a lot of fancy other vodkas out there. Uh, the only the American vodkas were terrible, and even Smirnoff uh, had begun to go a little bit downhill because, um, for example, uh, the drinks expert and, uh, and TV host was John Taffer says he remembers in the 70s people used to say Smirnoff was you know distilled from you know the Detroit River and uh, and what were the foreign imports at the time it was Finlandia and Stolichnaya and that was it and then a lot of just bad American vodkas Absolute comes on and it was very hard for them at first uh, to get any sort of attention because you had to convince uh, distributors that vodka from Sweden was just as good, if not better, than vodka from Russia. Nobody believed that. And it came in a lousy bottle. You know, it's short. It looks like a medicine bottle. It has a small neck. So it's it's hard for the bartenders to grab behind the bar. It's a little tricky that way. And plus, it's not, you know, uh, it's not a fancy glass. It's uh, very clear and transparent. You can see through it. Nobody liked it, and nobody really liked the name. They almost called it Damn Sweet Vodka, which was very funny. Thank goodness that didn't happen. Um, and all the big companies turned it down. You know, Brown Foreman, Hiram Walker. Luckily, Carillon Importers took it on, and they had a great advertising partner, TBWA. And those were the guys that transformed Absolute into a status icon because they said, we're going to do a very simple, ironic ad. It's just going to have the bottle and a, sort of a matte plexiglass background, and we're just going to say Absolute Perfection. And we're going to make it a little corny by putting wings or a halo on top so it's a little tongue-in-cheek and people will like that. Because if you just kept on saying to people, this is the best vodka ever, people get tired of that because we hear that every day. And from absolute perfection to absolute clarity, and the list goes on and on, hundreds, thousands of different variations on this thing. But as you were mentioning, Jeff, um, they changed our uh, opinion uh, and view of vodka. Uh, It was no longer get me a get me a vodka tonic or a vodka martini, I'll have an absolute tonic, an absolute martini, and we haven't uh, looked back since. And that, in fact, wasn't the end of this story, because then Grey Goose came along and upped the ante even more. Absolutely. I mean, you would think that it couldn't get any better for Absolute, and in fact, you know, Absolute had these wonderful ads, 
for cities and where they can... They, they didn't even have the bottle in the ads most of the time after a while. What you saw were, were images that resembled the bottle, whether it be Absolute LA as a swimming pool or New York Central Park looking like the bottle, and they had it good. And then in the mid-'90s, uh, somebody had a better idea, and that was Sidney Frank. Uh, and he was the guy whose other claim to fame was popularizing Jägermeister, and uh, which is which is a terrible tasting um, digestif, if you will. And he made it very popular in college campuses. But he had this idea in '96 that he was going to have a vodka. It was going to come from France because everything good comes from France, and we're gonna you know distill it from the same wheat that they make delicate pastries, and it's going to be filtered over champagne limestone, whatever that means, and uh, it's going to come in a very fancy bottle, frosted, a long neck. It's going to stand out on the bar, and uh, most importantly, the price. Um, so absolute at the time, I think, was about $16 in 1996, and uh, Sidney Frank said with Grey Goose, uh, we're going to charge maybe $30 because his thinking was if it's twice the price, people are going to think it's twice as good, and he was right about that. What's happened with respect to blind taste tests that have been done among these vodkas? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I've talked to people about this. I've talked to distillers about this. And there were famous blind test, taste tests that were done. And the New York Times did one in 2005 where they lined up, you know, 20 or so luxury craft vodkas. And it was a blind taste test. And the guy who arranged the test also snuck in a $12 bottle of Smirnoff. And sure enough, uh, the unanimous blind taste test winner was Smirnoff. And uh, I believe Huffington Post did something similar. They did a blind taste test, and the winner was Smirnoff again. Uh, my friend Robert Berniker, he has a uh, distillery out in Chicago called Koval, and he runs seminars uh, teaching people how to start up your own distillery. And these things are packed with you know, real spirit aficionados. And they did a blind taste test too. And sometimes they picked the fancy vodkas, but he said there was one time, blind taste test, they picked Wolfschmidt. And, you know, that comes in a plastic jug. <laughs> uh, and and it, it really does. And it's amazing. So uh, the point of that was not, people started to say, aha, this proves that all vodkas are the same. And my thought was that it doesn't prove that they're the same. What it proves is that our personal preferences may not match the perception I go to a bar, I like the idea of getting Kettle One. You know, that's a classy vodka. You see their commercials, it's masters of the universe going out, drinking vodka on the rocks. You know, they've got a lot of power, they've got a lot of money, they look like they're in control. Uh, in a blind taste test, I didn't choose. I think that was one of uh, my least favorite uh, vodkas out of four that I had tried. Uh, and so, you know, it's a matter of perception, and people sometimes don't like to think of themselves as a Smirnoff person, but hey, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed of that. If they got it, Order it, and you'll save yourself some money. In many ways, the marketing of vodka has been a little bit like the cosmetic industry in that it really is all about the image that's created, much more so than the product. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, I was just talking about Kettle One. Uh, that's the image that they want to convey is that, you know, these guys are in charge. I mean, Kettle One has so much money. Um, they sold 50% of the company, and it's a family that runs it in, in uh, the Netherlands, and they've run this same company since the, and the, they've been distilling gins and other spirits since the 1600s, and they sold 50% of their company to Diageo, which owns Smirnoff, for $900 million. Uh, and so, uh, with that kind of money, I mean, they are 
uh, able to afford very slick commercials, and they used to not do commercials at all, but they do commercials uh, that are directed by David O. Russell, who just directed American Hustle. I mean, you have, you know, uh, movie directors doing this, and, and every vodka has an image that they're trying to convey to you, whether it be, this is what, you know, the ladies of Sex in the City are drinking, that was Grey Goose. I mean, they hit it big. They didn't even have to spend on advertising because the ladies on Sex in the City, they started not ordering just, you know, Cosmos, Cosmopolitans, but rather Grey Goose Cosmos. And suddenly, every woman wanted to drink that. And so they said, well, if all the women are drinking this, another vodka is going to come out and say, we're the vodka for men. And that's basically what Kettle One did. You know, Kettle One ad said that, you know, our vodkas don't come in fancy flower-painted bottles. And so that was a direct answer to that. And Smirnoff, in fact, has a terrific ad now, which is, you know, laughing at all the fancy luxury vodkas and saying, you know what, I'm just going to take Smirnoff because it's, quote, just good vodka. And so it's very counterintuitive. Uh, but again, there are over a thousand, you know, brands in the market right now, Jeff. And, and how do you distinguish yours from the others if basically you're all, quote, unquote, flavorless, odorless, and colorless? You know, uh, what sets yours uh, apart? It's, very, it's, it's, a, it's a very cutthroat business to be in. And so that's what they've done. Um, even Tito's, which is one of my favorite uh, vodkas as well, and they come from Texas. And, you know, as uh, Tito Beverage, who is the maker of Tito's Vodka, says, um, he likes to think of his vodka as not fancy, but rather, you know, flame and yon at pot roast prices. That's how he calls his vodka. Uh, so there's, you know, a vodka for everybody depending on your mood. Talk a little bit about flavored vodka and what impact that's had on the market. It's one of the most bizarre things ever, actually, Jeff, because uh, even the experts in the business I talk to say that the one thing that has totally surprised them was the proliferation of flavors. Uh, flavored vodka has always existed uh, primarily as infused vodka. Is the Russians have been doing it at least since the 1800s. Infused, vod infused vodkas are different because you're actually talking about putting actual fruits or vegetables in a jar with vodka and letting it sit there for weeks, if not months, and getting that flavor, and it lowers the proof a little bit as well. Uh, the flavored vodka scene is different because you're actually talking about additives, whether they be natural or artificial. And that started happening in the 1980s. Absolute did it first with Absolute Citron, an absolute pepper, which is a peppery vodka. And at first I thought, who would ever want to drink that? That turned out to be a very popular vodka because people like to mix that with their Bloody Marys. And then Stolichnaya followed suit as well with their various flavors. Um, the interesting thing is the benefit of flavored vodkas for the business and for restaurants is that it makes your mixing so much faster uh, rather than saying, I have to add you know, um, the horseradish to my uh, Bloody Mary with the vodka. No, it's all in there already. Uh, if you have absolute papar or the Stoli equivalent, you just mix that with your tomato juice, presto, here you go. And that drink just took me maybe 30, 45 seconds to make. And you're exchanging money there. I mean, this is the interesting thing. Um, when I talk to uh, bar owners, uh, they go to these fancy places, which you know about now, and they're everywhere. Mixologists, some of whom are my friends, um, they can take five, ten minutes making a drink. And the bar owners are going to say, you know, buddy, you're not making me any uh, money on this. And uh, with vodka and with flavored vodka, you know, half the work is done for you already. Just add the club soda, presto, you're done. Cucumber vodka is very popular like that. Just throw in the rocks, throw in the 
throwing the Sprite or throwing the club soda and you, you are done, or the grapefruit juice. Uh, so that started this trend. But then something else happened, Jeff, which is um, we went from vodkas that were emulating natural flavors of fruits, maybe vegetables, and suddenly they started to emulate foods. And, you know, it's no longer something I want to drink. It's I, I want to, you know, drink something that I eat. It's sort of like the Willy Wonka or the Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, the seven-course meal gum. Um, and so you have vodkas with flavors such as peanut butter and jelly and rainbow sherbet, Cinnabon, salmon. I mean, you name it, it is out there. And uh, it sounds insane. And we have hundreds of flavors every year. Uh, but as another drinks writer, Jason Wilson, said, you know, they're not coming up with these flavors unless people are drinking them. Right. What's next for vodka? How much can the ante be continue to be upped in terms of this premium and super premium pricing? Every time I think that the, the, the vodka boom has got to turn into a bubble that bursts, you know, something else surprises me out there. Somebody else is jumping into the business. I mean, I started this book because I thought that, you know, I started to know more and more people who were getting into the business. And I thought this is sort of like the 1849 gold rush. And a fellow who was in the drinks industry said to me, it's more like, you know, Sutter's Mill in 1850. You know, it's a little bit too late to get in it. And yet more and more people are continuing to go into vodka. We're talking about hundreds of brands every year that are coming out. Uh, and it's not slowing down. I talked to these people uh, in the process of researching for this book. I asked them, you know, how crazy is it going to get? It's, there has to be a, a moment where there's going to be a shakedown and, and all these other brands are going to fall to the wayside. And these people said to me, yeah, we feel the same way, but, you know, it might happen. There might be a, a little bit of an adjustment, but by and large, uh, there's room for everybody, you know. I mean, everything is growing here, Jeff. We're talking about volume and we're talking about price. Americans, if you look at these charts and some of these charts you will find in my book, uh, we're not only drinking more vodka. Uh, last year we drank over 157 million gallons of it. Uh, and 65, that translates to 65 million cases. All the brown spirits combined, and they've made great strides, uh, still comes to about 55, 56 million cases. So it's still ahead. Um, and it's like $5.5 billion in supplier revenue. Um, not only are we drinking more, but our willingness to spend on vodkas has also increased over time. Over the last 10, 12 years, uh, you would think it would be absurd to, to spend more than $20 for a 750 milliliter bottle of vodka. Now people are spending $30, $40. Stoli Elite, uh, you, can, you could spend $60 on that. What impact has it had on other spirits? Has it been a zero-sum game that money that's spent on vodka, particularly more and more money as these premium vodkas come online, has specifically taken away from money on other spirits? That's a great question, Jeff. And you would think that with everybody, you know, getting into the vodka game, it's going to detract from these other spirits. In fact, that hasn't been happening uh, either. I, I think as the uh, economy must be improving, people are just drinking more. You know, I mean, obviously the population increases, and every year the number of 21-year-olds out there increases as well. Um, but you're seeing these amazing strides in whiskey and bourbon. This is very exciting, for example, for in, in, in our drinking culture coming out of Tennessee and Kentucky. And those bourbons, by the way, are, you know, they're trying to attract not just American drinkers, but drinkers uh, from around the world. And in particular in Asia, you know, China and Korea and Japan, they just love uh, the brown flavors there. 
Uh, and so that's been really working out well for them. Uh, you're seeing a rise a little bit in rum and tequila, but really the brown spirits have gotten a lot of attention for this. And the thing is, as, cra- as, as crazy as vodka gets, I think the result of that, Jeff, is also a backlash. Uh, and so you have a lot of people who are saying, I am totally done with vodka because they find it uninteresting, uh, because it precisely lacks character. And hey, you know what? It turns out I do like the taste of booze in my booze, so I'm going to drink gin. Uh, Derek Brown, who is a great mixologist out here in Washington, D.C., uh, he's not a big vodka fan. And if people come to his bar and say, I'd like some you know, vodka drink, he will actually ask the customer, you know, do you like flavored vodkas? And they say, sure. And he goes, great, I'll make you gin. And so um, I think everybody is winning in, in, in this. Uh, it's really a matter of taste. I found that the more I've um, researched and wrote the book on vodka, the more I started getting interesting in other spirits as well. Victorino Mattis. The book is Vodka, How a Colorless, Odorless, Flavorless Spirit Captured America. It's just out from Lions Press. Victor, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 